Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methusael, and Methusael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and one named Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Nana. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Hi, everyone. Great to see you all this afternoon. I, uh, <clears throat> I wonder what you've been up to this week. Uh, most likely, it's just been a pretty ordinary week. Except, of course, for England beating the All Blacks. That's, uh, that's not normal. Uh, beating the Springboks, I suppose, a 50-50. We'll see you next week. But uh, beating the All Blacks and so convincingly, that's, uh, that's quite special. 
But your week, yours personally, has probably been quite ordinary. You probably did some work, spent some time with family and friends, went to home group, paid some bills, had meals, watched TV, ordinary stuff. And um, that's what's going on here in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 4, normal life. Adam and Eve have children. Two of their sons, Cain and Abel, uh, are named here. No doubt they had more children, both sons and daughters, but these two are relevant to the story Moses is telling now, so he names them. Adam and Eve have been about their work, keeping flocks, growing crops, teaching their children to do the same. This was ancient Near Eastern homeschooling. So Cain has become a shepherd and Abel a crop farmer. It's a picture of normal domestic life. Dad and mum working, running a household, having and raising children, educating them, passing on their faith, sitting together watching Great Palestinian Bake Off. It's just a very normal, ordinary scene. And that's actually a bit odd when you think about it. I mean, the story itself is one thing, and we'll look at it in a minute, but why did Moses tell it? At first pass, it doesn't really seem to fit the context. If you think about the flow of the story up to this point, uh, Moses has just told Israel that God created the whole universe just to prepare a home for them. That with boundless power, he spoke everything into existence from nothing by the sheer authority of his word. How God then ordered and prepared a land, a home for mankind. That he gave the stars and the sun and the moon to serve man. Man whom he created, male and female, in his image, to love him, to know him, to care for the world he had created. Moses told in chapters 1 and 2 of the world as it was meant to be. The world in a state of innocence. The world God called very good in every way. We saw a picture of perfect relationships. Man and woman at peace with God, at peace with themselves, at peace with one another, naked and not ashamed. And all through his account, Moses told how it was good, very good, seven times good, perfectly and completely good. God's agenda, God's purposes unfolded under God's care, and the result was a state of rest, peace, and goodness, and grace-based covenant love. And then in chapter 3, a new agenda, a different agenda, entered the scene. Satan, the deceiver, the defiler, entered the garden, deceived the woman, overturned God's created order, and all was lost. Rest fell to striving, true communion fell to estrangement, peace with God was broken, peace with one another lost. The first three chapters were drama beyond all that Hollywood and Bollywood and Netflix combined could come up with. Downton Abbey doesn't come close. And after the story that was read for us now, Cain and Abel, and we'll get to in a moment, the drama continues. And we'll get there in the coming weeks, a great flood that wipes out all mankind. Noah and the ark, the Tower of Babel, huge drama, big screen stuff. And in the middle of it all, in the middle of this world-shaping drama that reveals God's eternal purposes, Satan's defiling purposes, Moses includes this very plain household scene. A man and a woman, 
raising their family, doing their work, just going about their ordinary lives. Why? Why did Moses tell the story? Why did Israel need to hear this? Why do we need to hear this? Well, I'm going to pray briefly and ask the Lord that he would help us to see what he wants to see, and then we will get into the story. Won't you bow your hearts with me for just a moment? Our God and Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your Holy Spirit that inspired your word and who opens the eyes of our hearts to see you. And would you do that now? Would you press your word into our hearts, upon our souls, to see you, the wonder of who you are and what you have done? Open the eyes of our hearts now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, um, let's look at verses 3 and 4. In the course of time, Cain brought forth some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The two brothers bring offerings to God, both from the fruits of their labor. Cain grows crops, and so he brings crops, grains, fruits, vegetables, we don't know exactly. Abel is a shepherd, so he brings an offering of sheep. Verse 4 and 5, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. The Lord accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Why? Why the one and not the other? Was it because one offered meat and the other grains and vegetables? No, God has no problem with vegans. In fact, elsewhere in the Old Testament, God specifically ordains grain offerings, so we know he's pleased with both. Well, what is it then? Why does he accept Abel's offering, but not Cain's? Well, Moses tells us that Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. But of Cain's offering, he just says he brought something. Moses emphasizes that Abel brings of the best he has, but Cain just brings something. Now, think about what it means for a shepherd to bring an offering from the firstborn of his flock. Think of the practicalities of this. Firstborn means that they are also second and third and fourth and tenth and twentieth born. It means when he was tending his flocks, watching over their labor and birthing, God was uppermost in his mind. He wasn't just thinking about how many lambs were being born. He wasn't just thinking about his profit margins. The motivation of his heart was first I want to offer the first and the best of what I have to God in thanks for his kindness in blessing me. He was watching, waiting for the firstborn. He was occupied with his flocks, but preoccupied with God. And when the firstborn arrived, he had to mark it, to identify it. He had to make sure it fed well from its mother and that it grew fat. Newborn lambs are not fat, they're skin and bone. He had to keep it safe from jackals and wolves. And when the time was right, when it was fat and healthy, he had to cut its throat and prepare it, skin it, clean it, and separate the best portions for offering. He took care over this offering. He took time and thought and effort to prepare. Cain just brought something. Abel's offering was an act of costly, loving devotion. It was an act that said, God, you come first in my heart. Above ease, above convenience, above profit, 
above worldly gain, God, you have all of me. Cain just brought something. He went through the motions of offering, but that's all it was, just the motions. His heart wasn't in it. His affections were elsewhere. That's why he was angry. Verse 5, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. The Lord saw through the motions of his offering to the movements of his heart. His heart that was distant from God and content to be distant. And when God exposed his mechanical religion and held out to him the chance to repent and make right, rather than repent the coldness of his heart, he was angry. Why did these two brothers have such different attitudes towards God? Well, remember where we are in the story. Their parents, Adam and Eve, had taught them about God, about life in the garden. They had told them what it was like to know true rest and peace and whole-souled communion with God and with one another. They had told their children what it was to walk with the Lord in the cool of the afternoon, enjoying his creation with him. They had told their children how they lost it all in the great fall. But they had also told their children how, even in the losing, even though they had sinned against him, even though they were to blame, God had shown amazing grace. God had come looking for them in the garden. He had patiently drawn them out of hiding and to repentance. He had covered their shame and restored them to relationship with himself and with one another. He had promised to crush the serpent. And not only that, but he would make them part of his victory by raising up one day from their own offspring, the serpent crusher. Cain and Abel knew from their parents that God was a God of grace. That though he would have been perfectly in the right to condemn their parents to death on the spot, he didn't. He chose instead to cover their sin with the sacrifice of an animal. And he chose to draw fallen sinners into his eternal plan for a never-ending Sabbath in a new world. Cain and Abel heard their father, Adam, tell them why he had named their mother Eve. Because she was to be the mother of all the living. Because he had understood that God's grace to them, even after their great sin, meant that there was somehow a promise of life that overruled the penalty of death. Abel heard this testimony, this story of the God of amazing grace, the God who gives and promises life, overruling life, and Abel's heart lifted in worship. Nothing was too much for this God. All his heart belonged to God. The best of his flocks were not too much to give to this God. Were the whole realm of nature mine, Abel might have sang, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Cain, the New Testament writer Jude tells us, sought only his own gain. Abel's offering was a response to grace, Cain's was a mechanism to gain. Now how will you respond 
to the God of grace. That's what Moses is asking Israel. How will you respond to God's prior grace? As they stand on the border of the promised land, a free nation, how will they respond to the grace God has shown in rescuing them from Egypt, in sustaining them in the wilderness, and now in taking them into their promised land? Will their hearts lift in worship to the God of grace? And will their ordinary lives be given to trusting obedience? Or will they take grace for granted, seek their own gain and glory, and go their own way? How will you respond to the grace God has shown you in sending his son to the cross to die for your sin? Will you trust and obey or go your own way? Moses continues the story with a picture of what going your own way looks like. Cain, angry at having the motivations of his heart exposed, lures his younger brother out into the fields away from witnesses, kills him. And again, quite unbelievably, the God of grace goes after him. How patient is God? that he should pursue in grace sinners such as us, drawing us to repentance even while we run and hide from him with guilty consciences that should be guilty. And again, Cain betrays his inner heart. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Verse 13. All Cain is concerned about is himself, his own comfort, his own ease, his own reputation, his own gain in the world. And the Lord still shows pity and allows him to live the remainder of his natural life. The Lord gives him over to his self-destroying heart. And Moses records the damning judgment in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, the land of wandering, east of Eden. And that verse, friend, that verse should cause you to hold your breath in fear. May it never be true of you that you go away from the presence of the Lord, that after he has pursued you and come after you, and come after you, and come after you, and patiently held out grace and grace and grace and grace in spite of your sin, may it never be that he stops coming after you and gives you over to your sin. To settle away from him in the land of wandering, Cain doesn't go, God doesn't go after Cain again after verse 16. He has given him over. And what does living in that land, the land of wandering, look like? Well, Cain built a city. And under his leadership, architecture and town planning and civil engineering began to develop. He fathered a line of children who advanced agriculture and mining 
metalwork, craftsmanship, music, and literature. He was a cultured man, the patriarch of a cultured and successful dynasty. He had all the, all the success and all the acclaim of the world, and he was under the judgment of God. We think we know what judgment looks like from movies and uh, cartoons, don't we? Firebolts from heaven, the thundering angry voice of God that makes the mountains quake. And there is a coming day of ultimate judgment when the mountains will quake. Terrifying beyond imagining it will be. Some parts of the book of Revelation that honestly I struggle to read and I don't know how when we get there I will preach them. There is a coming judgment and terrible it will be. But judgment isn't only for that day. God is judging now. And his judgment now looks like ordinary life in this world. From verse 17 to verse 24, Moses describes seven generations in the line of Cain. Seven is the number in the Bible that represents completeness. God prepared the land for his people in six days, and on the seventh he rested, for his work was complete. So when Moses describes seven generations in the line of Cain, what he means is, this is what rebellion against God, what rejecting his grace looks like when it reaches its completion. This is where that direction goes. This is where it ends up. And in these verses, as we noticed earlier, we see the progression of human society and culture, advancing technology and artistic expression. But at the same time, we see a man who killed his own brother without remorse. And then in the seventh generation, his descendant Lamech takes two wives. We see the rejection of God's design for family. No longer one man and one woman. No longer an atmosphere of love and grace. Instead, polygamy and murder. Cain rejected God's grace and went away from God's presence. Peace with God was lost. Peace within himself was lost. He was now a permanent wanderer, always searching, never finding. Peace with his fellow man was lost. Proper human relationships are broken. Polygamy, murder, vengeance in their place. Love and humility are gone. Look at verses 23 and 24, how he boasts of violence. A young man struck me, so I killed him. Cain's revenge was sevenfold. Mine will be seventy-sevenfold. In other words, I am my own law. I don't care what boundaries God has decreed. I will take the law into my own hands. And he does. And for a minor offense, he avenges himself by murder and boasts of it to his wives. And did you notice that he boasts in poetry? Verses 23 and 24 are a poem. Lamech is a cultured man. He's a man of the world, enlightened. I have two wives. Old-fashioned, bigoted boundaries don't apply to me. He's a powerful man. Kills a man younger than himself. Enlightened, powerful, educated, cultured. The beneficiary of seven generations of a family dynasty that controlled the development of engineering, mining, politics, and the arts. Are you hearing the parallels, friends? How different is Lamech 
to the cultured, enlightened, rich, powerful elites that seek to shape our society. What does judgment, what does the judgment of God look like right now? Just look out the window. Judgment looks like the world you live in every day. Now, why did Moses tell the story? Well, because he wants you to trust and obey, to reject the way of Cain and go the way of Abel. He wants you to trust and obey. What does that look like? What does trust and obey look like in this life? Well, if you just look one chapter back at uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, when God pronounced the curse on the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And that's what Moses has been describing in chapter 4, this growing enmity between the line of the woman and the line of the serpent, between those who respond to the grace of God in worship, as Abel did, and those who reject the grace of God as Cain did. And it looks like the line of the serpent has won. Cain has seven generations of sons, a growing and powerful family dynasty. Abel is dead and has no sons. And doesn't it look like the line of Cain is winning in our world even today? But listen to how the New Testament speaks of Abel. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith. Faith in what? Well, we've already seen how Abel responded to the prior grace of God, to the testimony that his parents had shared with him, to the grace that God had shown his parents and they had told him about. That for all the grace God had shown, Abel responded in thankful worship. But he wasn't only responding to God's past grace. He was trusting in God's future grace. He knew from what his parents had taught him, he knew that there would be some kind of a return to the garden. So when the writer says, by faith, Abel brought a better offering, what he means is that Abel knew and believed that God was a God of grace who wanted relationship with him and who had made a way for that relationship that was lost to be restored. There would be a new seventh day Everything as it was at the end of chapters 1 and 2 would somehow, someday, be restored. You see, the whole context of Hebrews chapter 11 is about access to the presence of God. Abel's father and mother had known that presence and had taught their children all about the God of grace who would one day restore man to his presence in a new and better garden forever. And so the point in Hebrews is that Abel was one of those men and women of faith who understood God's plan and trusted in his grace and held fast to his promise of a new world. All these people, says the writer to the Hebrews, were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. They only saw and welcomed them from a distance. They were not at home in this world. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abel looked to God's past grace and worshipped. And Abel looked ahead to God's future grace and trusted. Friends, it may look to all the world, it does look to all the world, that Abel is dead, that Cain has won, that trust in God equals defeat and loss and weakness and foolishness. It does look to all the world, does it not, that the line of Cain, the line of the serpent, holds all the power. But friends, Moses' message to Israel was God is doing something beyond what you can understand. God's eternal purposes are unfolding through you and around you. Israel, God will fulfill his promise. He will raise up the serpent crusher. Even when it looks like the line of Cain has won, God's purposes can never be defeated. The greatest power the serpent holds is the fear of death. But what is death to God who holds the power of overruling life? God who honors the faith of his chosen people through the centuries in which their bodies lie in dust. God who delights in the faith of those who long for their new and heavenly country. Satan, the ancient serpent, is defeated. By his death, by Jesus' death on the cross, Hebrews says, by Christ's death on the cross, he broke the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Why then does God not simply wipe Satan out altogether? He has the power and the right to do so. And the book of Revelation tells us that he is one day going to do that. Why not do it now? Why didn't God cast Satan into the lake of fire the very day he had rebelled? Why let him rampage through humanity for centuries? Well, the ultimate answer is that all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, will be more highly honored in the end because he defeats Satan through long-suffering, patience, humility, servanthood, suffering, even death, than through raw power. And there's more. In Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How great is the victory of God that he makes us to share in it, that he makes us share in the crushing of the serpent. And he does it through our ordinary, everyday response to his grace. When we, like Abel, look back to grace, to the grace God has already shown us, amazing grace shown to undeserving sinners, when we remember that he came after us in our sin to rescue us, when we look back to the cross of Christ, to grace supremely displayed, and we worship, 
And when we look ahead to the promise of life eternal, to a new garden, a new creation, a new home, and we trust. When we look back to grace past and look ahead to grace future, and we now trust and obey, the serpent is crushed under our feet to the glory of God. The moments that shape your eternal destiny don't come with a soundtrack. They don't come dressed up looking like destiny-shaping moments. They look like the ordinary things of life, the ordinary, everyday moments. Just as this very plain chapter is encircled by the magnificent story of what God is doing in unfolding his eternal purposes for the display of his glory in the joy of his people and the crushing of Satan and the judgment of those who reject his grace, so the very plain and ordinary days of your life display, display for God's pleasure and the devil's crushing, your trust in the God of grace. So how will you respond to the grace of God in your ordinary moments? Looking back to grace past and looking ahead to grace future, trust and obey in your ordinary days. Would you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Father, we would, we would be one of those men and women of faith of whom you said, like Abel, that the world was not worthy of them because they trusted in you. They looked back to what you had done, to your acts in history, to the visible displays of your grace in the lives of the faithful, They took hold of your promises and looked ahead to their ultimate fulfillment and said, I trust in this God, this God who created heaven and earth, this God who has shown grace after grace after grace after grace to undeserving sinners like me for centuries, this God who promises a new home, a new future, this God who holds the overruling power of life. What have I to fear? I will trust and obey my God of grace now in the ordinary, everyday moments of life. May that be said of us, Father, to your glory and to the display of your glory in this town and beyond. May it be that the testimony of that sort of life points to a great God and a great Savior, a great hope, a great promise, life eternal with the God of grace. Amen. Amen.